Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Ottawa, Canada. Welcome to the show, Dr. Neil Chatta. Thanks for having me, Victor. And on that note, I am on call. I don't think I'll be called, but just if I do disappear randomly, it's because I've been called. Okay. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't get more authentic than that. So, Neil, you're a young guy. Like many people that go through that professional track, you know, you graduated, you went to university, you did your pre med, and then decided to go into medical school. Tell us a little bit about that journey and, and a bit about your practice today. Sure. So, yeah, my uh, my father is a physician, so he uh, was lucky enough to to see what uh, he did uh, for his work. My my sister as well ended up going to medical school just ahead of me. So I was pretty exposed to it. Uh, I always liked going to to work with my dad when I could, and so I went away to Calgary for three years of medical school and came back. And family medicine, mainly care of the elderly, is really what I gravitated towards. I uh, worked at a few retirement homes, first year medical school, and pretty much fell in love with them ever since. So uh, one day I had a feeling that I would I would build one, and that's what I ended up doing. But uh, currently, I am the uh, physician uh, at the retirement home that I own, and I work at the Ottawa Hospital as well. That's awesome. That's not a typical career track. When you go to medical school, it's easy to get immersed in the day-to-day practice, not put up your head from that activity and see anything outside of that. Where did the brainchild come from to say that you would actually even develop or own one yourself? So I I was lucky again. My dad uh, did real estate. I had good exposure to that. And then I always had a passion for business. So basically, as I was working initially, I had uh, some real estate, just passive income generation. And then I started traveling from retirement home to retirement home as the doctor. That's when I had the idea, you know, I think there's an opportunity to improve some of those, you know, standards of care and service and uh, talk to talk to my dad, talk to some, you know, my, my wife and, and others about it, met someone who had, who had done it before and he agreed to partner up with me. And what made you decide to build new versus uh, simply acquiring an existing asset? I was pretty young at the time, I guess, and wanted to take a big risk. So I thought, might as well try construction now. Wow. <laughs> That's uh, definitely not for the faint of heart. So so tell us a little bit about your facility. I, I know it's um, it was made out of structural steel, I believe, in Perth. And uh, tell us a bit about the whole design of the, the complex. Sure. I- the uh, the first building is a 102 unit aging in place retirement home and it has its own secured memory care floor and you can move in independent and pretty much live there until until the end and we've just start well it's been about almost a year now of construction of our phase two which is a link building with a clubhouse yoga studio pool sauna party room and then a lot of outdoor amenity space, pickleball court, horseshoe pit, pond, and lots of walking paths. And then it'll be a 119-unit senior apartment building. How did you decide the mix? Well, let's take maybe take a moment and define, because when we talk about senior housing, there's many different asset classes. You know, We can start at one end of the spectrum with independent living, where the services are pretty minimal. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got skilled nursing and long-term care. And then you've got a number of 
products that are positioned in the middle, like assisted living and memory care, maybe Parkinson's care and so on. How did you decide that mix? What was the right product mix and how did you come up with that? So the first building was interesting in that it was what I could afford at the time and feasibility also what it allowed for. So it was 102 units. In hindsight, I would have liked to build 150 to 170. And the only reason I say that is because of economies of scale when it comes to staffing and as a percent of, of gross revenue in terms of expenses. That, that was the reason behind the, the first building. There were seniors' apartments, 119. It, again, it, the, the feasibility for seniors' apartments is always through the roof just because there aren't many. It's what we could fit on the site. Very interesting. Now, you started with a basically a piece of land and took it right through the entitlement process. And, and once you had that, you took it vertical as well. Talk us through the timeline from start to finish. Sure. Uh, it, was, it was my first development project ever. And uh, my partner tells me I got really lucky, which I uh, don't doubt. But the town of Perth was really friendly from the get-go. There was a family estate that owned the piece of land. And uh, not many people knew it was for sale. I, I just cold called uh, an old sign on the lot. Uh, and uh, the gentleman was very nice and we agreed on, on a price and uh, I basically held it conditional until uh, the zoning was approved and the zoning did not take long at all. Again, very, very lucky. Once the zoning was approved, then I started getting more studies done and, you know, started looking for financing and started to sort of crystallize or, uh, things with my, with my business partner as well. Often when we talk about senior housing, you tend to look at it as a piece of real estate and often structured as a piece of real estate for tax purposes. But at the end of the day, it's a service business first and foremost, and it's maybe 20% a real estate business, but first and foremost, a service business. And I say that from the perspective of someone who's in that business myself, owning a facility in Louisiana. The top three issues are staffing, staffing, and staffing. How did, when I say staffing, it's getting the right leadership team in place. How did you pull that together? keep saying I got lucky, but I think lots of that is true. I was pretty new to hiring staff, firing staff, and uh, even hiring leaders, but just through playing in sports teams, having good mentors, trying to find like-minded people. That was my main strategy when I when I hired uh, our managers and also people that had experience in the field because I was very green. And then if someone didn't fit, a friend gave me advice, and it's pretty good advice, but she said, if if someone doesn't fit in, in your culture, then you got to get rid of them quickly. Otherwise, things can can escalate pretty you know pretty fast. That's absolutely excellent advice for sure. I mean, I look at this from the perspective of someone who's in the development game every day of the week, and there are so many things that can go wrong. What you've done here is is almost a it's almost a hole in one. It's really th- that remarkable that on your first project, you got all of these things to line up almost perfectly. But there had to have been some challenges along the way, whether it was material cost overruns or what have you. What, where did you run into difficulty? Because you must have. Yeah, I had my fair share. It probably aged me a lot, but that, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the first, the first issue was, was construction. Actually, getting a good buddy, a guy I went to high school with, to do our site work. You know, I still remember closing the contract with him. And I mean, in, in his defense, it was really no one's fault. But what ended up happening is our site work initial contract was about 700000 
And after everything was said and done, it ended up being 1.7 million. So it's a million dollars of overruns and just site work. My business partner, obviously, you know, he's he's an older older gentleman and really really nice, but he was concerned because he had never had these types of overruns in the past. And what ended up happening was that they ended up having to dig way further down than they thought. And obviously, you never really know with site work what what you have underneath you. They were also working a lot without us knowing my partner and I because our our site super was not very good, quite frankly, and the whole construction management was really, really bad. As a result, I had to basically manage the project on my own and really learned a lot. But I still remember my partner making me go through all of the time and material sheets, the literally like the, 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 the handwritten sheets. And I had to take them off and make sure everything added up so that you know $1.7 million worth of work was accounted for. That's a painful story and, and all too common a story. Certainly, I've lived that myself especially site work can be one of the biggest risks because like you said, you may not know exactly what your site conditions are, what your soil stability is. You certainly hire a geotechnical engineer and try and get as much of that figured out in advance, but there's still a ton of risk there. So you started to go vertical. Uh, What kind of challenges did you run into there? Luckily, not not as many on the first one. The, The second one is its own story with with steel uh, for example and you know lumber shortages but the biggest thing was just disorganization on our project manager's part as such there was no coordination nothing was uh, being done in a in an organized manner and i was having to step in which i guess in you know could be a blessing in disguise because i did learn a lot real estate projects can often be pretty resilient you had some cost overruns well, how did you deal with them? Did you go raise more capital on the equity side? Did you go raise more debt? Is it put you in an unstable situation? Or are you at this point saying, okay, we've got it handled and it'll just come out in the wash? Yeah, a couple of things. I had to, to work more hours at the hospital. <laughs> uh, but also, my I, I'm pretty lucky. My, my dad's always in, in insurance if I ever if I ever need him. And he knows that. And luckily, you know, I ended up being, being okay. But even just having him come to site, with my mom and even just being able to bounce ideas off of my wife. But I had a lot of support throughout the project, which was nice. So basically going back to the bank and and asking for more money, that also helped because my partner has a good reputation with the bank. So they they allowed us to increase the construction loan midway through the project as well. That's awesome. So tell us a bit more about the facility. How many beds? What's the breakdown between the different care classes? So it's 102 suites. Construction started. So I, just about going back to your timeline, I, mm-hmm. uh, I closed on the land in October of 2017, started construction in May of 2018, and ended up completing it by um, October 2019. So just about 16 months of construction, which I thought was pretty good. And then we ended up getting takeout financing in 2020. So which basically was a year. So a year of lease up and we got takeout financing through through the pandemic. Uh, the bank said this is like the first facility that's gotten takeout financing in a, in a pandemic. So yeah, lot, lots of good, good things happen. But yeah, it's got uh, meals, housekeeping, laundry activities. And as I mentioned, it's got its own secure uh, care for as well. You've got to hire all of these skills. You've got to hire a chef. You've got to hire 
an activities director, uh, head of nursing, you've got to hire personal support workers, all of it. You know, those are very diverse skills. How do you even know that you're hiring the right people in the right roles? So initially, I hired managers that had experience in the industry. They taught me a whole heck of a lot. And then as I got to know the roles a little bit better, I was able to, especially from the medical side, like, you know, PSLBs, nurses, I was able to ask them specific questions and see what their attitude was towards care. And then, yeah, I think if you hire good leaders, then they, they manage their staff pretty well as well. And I, I'm pretty hands-on. I think that that helps too. Absolutely. So I know this was a multi-phase project. Are, are you fully built out at this stage or is there are there still other phases to be completed? So we're actively constructing the second phase right now, which as mentioned, is a 119 luxury senior apartment building complex. And that actually had more delays in the first project because of COVID. I still remember July, I was doing a town hall with the residents and I get a call from my construction guy and I'm like, "Uh oh, should I take it? I take it. And he goes, yeah, the steel contract, you know how we thought it'd be 2 million? It's five. So that was a bit scary. But again, we, we got through it. Wow. And, and so you made the decision to build using structural steel as opposed to uh, reinforced concrete or, or even wood frame for that matter. Yeah, we, we can't build a wood frame with, I mean, I've talked to my architect about this many times, but there's mainly two reasons we, we stay away from wood frame. One is the higher level of care and also just the, the floor spans of our footprint are quite large. So we have lots of structural steel beams going through the columns that support as well. So both buildings are structural steel. And in our defense, we didn't know that steel wouldn't go up as much as it didn't cost when we were deciding what to build this thing out of, which would have been early spring 2020, or maybe even 2019, to be honest. And I can't remember now. Right, right. When, when Do you remember when steel started going up? It, it was during the pandemic, for sure. So it would have been in 2020 that steel really spiked. Yeah, so I think we worked on our design in like yeah. 2019. Yeah, fascinating. So fast forward, you've got your permanent financing in place. You are uh, into phase two. What's the plan beyond that? Well, it's uh, great that you asked. I have a, another project that I'm working on. It's uh, in Carlton Place, actually. A similar concept. I find that having more retirement units and, and being able to capture more revenue will allow me to again use economies of scale when it comes to staffing but uh, this this is a really nice site because it uh, it's right beside a commercial plaza there's existing residential uh, on the the east side we decided to put in some townhomes on this one but an apartment building as well as a retirement home and just some local commercial here so that land just closed and I'm hoping to start construction on that in early 2023. I know this. Uh, this you and I looked at this project together some some months ago, and uh, it it is a very interesting project. One of the things that I know we look for when we're undertaking assisted living, obviously, it, demand is part of it, but it's not just demand; it's also demand and ability to pay at that price point. Because if uh, you know your cost structure is really driven by staffing, you know people often think about assisted living as being expensive. They say, "Oh my gosh." you know, five grand a month or six grand a month, how can anybody ever afford that? And that, on the one hand, that is true, but compared with round the clock full time care, which is perhaps the alternative, 
it's a bargain because if you're looking at three shifts of full-time care, you're probably looking at 15 to 20 grand a month. So how do you, how do you know that there is the affordability in that location to have a project that's going to be not just, you know, having demand, but also economically viable? Right. So the, there are uh, companies out there that help out with that. Uh, CBRE is the company we use. So mm-hmm. they'll, they'll do initial feasibility studies and then you can proceed to full feasibility. That's the first thing. And then the, the second thing is I'll, um, I'll look at the town myself and, and I'll go online and I'll look into what the average household income is. That's on Canadian census data. And I'll look at the average price of a home that's sold in that community. Those two things um, definitely can help uh, determine whether the, the, the town is affluent enough to afford a private uh, senior living in terms of care, because as you say, Victor, it, it can get quite pricey. We, we've seen uh, shortages in, in, uh, in staffing and healthcare right across the board. I mean, uh, the entire healthcare industry is facing staffing shortages, and that's driven salary increases, in some cases, significant salary increases in senior housing. Um, how, how are you handling that? By hoping to grow, <laughs> you know, and, and, and spreading the, the salaries across multiple homes. But I'm, I'm convinced that this is a challenge that will not only remain, but get worse uh, over time. So we, we have to be really competitive and uh, in senior housing, we are unfortunately not the most attractive job for nurses and PSWs. Uh, long-term care pays more, hospitals pay more. Uh, we don't have the pension. So it's something I've really struggled with and thought hard about. I'm part of a business group and I like to pick the, you know, the guy's brains as well trying to get ideas so really trying to to aim at retention and growing your you know your staff in terms of their careers and uh, helping them achieve their dreams yeah that's that's absolutely true i mean we found for example in staffing our own facility especially some of the larger operators they have so much process so much overhead that the ability for staff members to exercise initiative exercise their own judgment they really have their hands tied behind their back and whatever altruistic feeling they had when they got into that business doesn't take very long before it's got beat out of them. And so we formed a business that had a different culture. And we've been able to hire some of the absolute best people out of the marketplace because they were able to return to their roots in terms of what they were after when they actually even got into that segment of the business. And uh, it wasn't just offering you know $2 more an hour it was giving people better working conditions first and foremost. Exactly, Victor. And, and I think that those types of, uh, you know, attractive benefits, not just the money, but, you know, autonomy, better hours, extracurriculars. I, I think those are the only ways that uh, a company like ours uh, will survive in the future. No, I love what you're doing. Well, Neil, thank you so much. This was fabulous. Good luck with Carlton Place. We're going to be watching carefully and closely to see how that's progressing. And just really appreciate you taking the time to share that with us this evening. Thank you, Victor. And I want to thank you for all the advice you've given me over the last two years. You know, anytime I have a question, I can just pop you an email or a phone call and you you really give me as much honest advice. I I read your book as well. So uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me. Oh, no, thank you. This was great. Thank you so much. And for the listeners at home, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.